Father, we pray that you would please, by your Spirit, open up our eyes so that we may see wonders in your word. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are uh, continuing through Deuteronomy. And just to remind us, the first three and a bit chapters of Deuteronomy is Moses retelling what has happened to the first generation of Israel as he's preparing the second generation to finally enter in to the promised land. And we're um, just about finished with Moses retelling um, what has happened because the, the people of Israel are just on the cusp of the promised land. Um, I wonder if you are someone um, that when you're at a, a pool or the ocean that is freezing cold, there's usually one of two kinds of people. You either, um, probably more like me, you try and tiptoe your way in and you take it very gently in and you think that if you just take like 20 minutes, you won't actually feel the cold and you'll just gradually ease your way in. And um, so you kind of put your ankle in and all of these sensitive parts of your body start to feel cold. And just your worst fear is that annoying friend who is just waiting to push you in or to splash you and get you right in the middle of the back and it's freezing. And so you're stiff and you're, you're, um, uh, you know, trying to ease your way in, but you keep having to retreat and stay away and you get scared and frightened. And then there's the other person who can just cannonball in, jump in and uh, get through three seconds of discomfort, flail their arms around, do some, some butterfly stroke um, like a madman to get yourself warm, and then you're fine and you're, you're fully emerged in. And uh, when it comes to discipleship, and following God's will. Um, for those two people going into a pool, I think some people could argue one is right, one is wrong, and there may be a difference of opinion. But as far as following God's call into discipleship, there really is only one way, and it is to be fully immersed into it. There is no tiptoeing around trying to have one foot in and one foot out getting scared there's actually a call to just jump in to renounce everything and cross over comfort and jump into this path of discipleship and this passage today that we're going to go over that we just read through from chapter 3 and really focusing on verses 18 to 22 is about crossing over into the fullness of God's promise that's what this passage is about. It's about the Israelites crossing over the Jordan, being, um, uh, getting ready at least to cross over the Jordan into the fullness of God's promise, which is the promised land. So God's desire for his people is that they would enter into the fullness of his promise, this land that he had given to them, and that they would not settle on the fringes of this land. And so we then receive a similar call to not settle on the fringes of discipleship, but to enter fully into it. And so to give a bit of a recap, Moses has uh, been retelling the story of 
God's people being led out of Egypt into the promised land. The first generation rebelled. They were scared. They spread a bad report. God brought judgment upon them and said, right, I'm sending you back into the wilderness for 40 years. It's been about 40 years. And now they are starting to um, conquer some of these nations. The second generation have learned from the example of the first generation, all of the wrongs that they did. And uh, Moses is now rallying them, getting them ready to enter in. And as Andrew preached on last week, we saw how the wilderness wanderings, those 40 years were actually there to sanctify them, which is to set them apart for God's purpose. So the sufferings that they went through in the wilderness were actually God's purpose to purify them and make them ready to enter in to the fullness of his promise. So starting at chapter 3 here, this is where we take off from verse 1. And I'm just going to um, very quickly work through um, the first 17 to 18 verses of this, and we'll spend most of our time in the last third there. So in chapter 3, we see a, a very similar story to what we went through last week, where there was this defeat of King Sihon in the end of chapter 2. And now you have this other king, King Og, who was a big dude. Um, and uh, the Israelites, um, they managed to conquer this, this king and this nation. This was a region just north of um, uh, the, where we left the Israelites last week, which is, I, I'm not as um, clever as Andrew and I can't do a reverse map like he did the other week. And I'm also not clever enough to put a PowerPoint up. So um, you have the, the Dead Sea, Jerusalem, and the people are coming up to the east of the Dead Sea. And they're kind of at the, the, um, the border of it here, the Arnon River. And they're starting to conquer these lands. And they're working their way up to eventually come across into the promised land where you have Jerusalem at the center. And uh, this story here, this section from verses 1 to 11, where Moses is saying, we defeated this king, these huge people. It's really just adding another layer to um, the encouragement that he's trying to give the people before they enter in. So I don't know if you can remember, but one of the things that the first generation said, we went through this in chapter 1, and it's, remember, Deuteronomy is retelling the story which we get the original account in Numbers. And one of the things that the people said then, when the spies went into the land and they, they saw the people and they said, man, these people are huge and the cities are fortified with high walls. There's no way we can go into this city. Moses, this is a suicide mission. We're not doing it. And they spread this bad report saying these cities are impenetrable. They're fortified and the people are huge. And then look at what Moses says in verse 5. He's just been retelling the people how we, we took over these lands. God gave into our hand Og, the king of Bashan, and we took 60 cities. And then in verse 5, all these cities were fortified with high walls, gates and bars. So this is like the reversal of what went wrong the first time where the people saw how big the cities were. And they were too big for them at that time. And now Moses is saying, yeah, they were big, but 
they're of course no match for God. We conquered them. We have 60 cities now. It was easy. And then in verse 11, this kind of weird thing, you wonder why the author is describing the size of the bed of King Og. It says um, his bed was a bed of iron, which could mean that they're describing the coffin, like his, his actual coffin. But regardless, they're saying it was nine cubits in length, which is like four meters <coughs> long. So this is a big guy. And so the author is saying these were cities fortified with high walls. The king was like four meters tall. That is huge. And we conquered them. Why do you doubt God? Why do you doubt God? So he's pressing it home to them not to fall into the same trap as the first generation who feared men over God, who feared their circumstances over their savior. Visible obstacles are irrelevant when God is active among his people. Totally irrelevant. God owns everything. He will make a way. And so from verse 12, Moses explains how this land was divided up. And this land is talking about modern day Jordan to the the east of the Dead Sea. And it's describing how the people slowly (coughs) spread in. Reuben and Gad, two of the 12 tribes of Israel, they received the first two portions of the land. And then there was this area that was already inhabited of Gilead and Bashan, which is north of those areas. And this land is given to the half-tribe of Manasseh, which is why in verses 14 and 15 we read of Jair the Manessite. And then in verse 15 to Machir... Um, these are these people who descend from Manasseh, and it's just basically saying that this tribe is settling in this area. And the whole point of this passage, like don't, don't get lost in, in the detail of that. The whole point of this passage is both that the people of Israel are slowly spreading out. So they're spreading out to take this land, but actually it's not yet the promised land. So this area um, of Uh, King Sihon and King Og is not actually in the promised land. It's just on the fringe of the promised land. And the tribes, so Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they see this land and they approach Moses and say, well, this looks like some pretty good land. How about we take this? It's just on the fringe of it. And initially Moses is kind of like, well, why, why don't you want to come into the promised land? This is the whole point of our existence. Have you not been with us this whole time? And initially there's, there's a bit of conflict, but eventually they realize, no, no, that's okay. They can settle on this part of the land. But the point is it's actually not in the <coughs> promised land. So they're just on the fringe. And now we get to verse 18. And this is where we'll spend most of our time, 18 and 22. So, um, We have this picture of these tribes who are on the edge of the promised land. They're not fully into it. And in this passage, Moses is reminding them of what happened when they got to this land. And he's saying to them, basically, you tribes, Reuben, Gad and Manasseh, you must fully enter into the promised land. So you can have this land that is on the edge of it but only if all of your able men enter in with all of your brothers, all of Israel into the promised land. If you don't do that, you will have no inheritance among us. So yes, it's okay. We realize that the land itself is pointing to something 
bigger. So you can have this area on the fringe if it's gonna work for you, but the only way you're gonna get that is if you fully jump in. If you come across with all of us and you take this inheritance, you conquer that land as God has been instructing to you. And so they must fully enter in with their brothers into the fullness of God's promise. So in verse 19, Moses is retelling how this was, this was basically how they worked it out. They said the, the wives and the children and the livestock will get settled into the land. And once that happens, all of the men are going to leave them and head in with everyone else, cross over the Jordan and enter in to the promised land with the community of Israel. And in this section here, Moses kind of glosses over the details as he's retelling it. But in Numbers 32, which is the original account, we see that Moses warns them and he says to the people, don't be like the first generation who discouraged the hearts of the people from going over into the land the Lord had given them. Don't tiptoe on the fringes. Don't stay on the fringes and discourage people. Moses says, your fathers did this and the Lord was angry with them. Judgment came upon them. So in the original account, we read that the people, they, they actually heed these words. So the people learn, the second generation learn, they prepare the land for the women and children. They get ready to go in with their brothers and take the land. And so they have learnt from the errors of their fathers who, remember we went over it a few weeks ago in self-centered fashion in a very um, selfish, self-preservation way. They disobeyed God's commands to take the land and they preferred to preserve themselves. They stayed on the, the fringe. They stayed away from entering into the fullness of it. And so this is where we're left. This is where this passage kind of leaves us. Moses has just been um, retelling how this is the situation. People started to settle and I told you, make sure you enter in, make sure you enter in. But we don't actually read of them entering in until the book of Joshua. So we're kind of left at this place here where they're on the fringe and Moses is kind of rallying them to enter in. They're just on the cusp of the promise. So what is this telling us today? For us, if we apply this to ourselves, how do we apply this to our situation? Remember um, in chapter one, uh, we spoke about the idea of the possession of land pointing to something bigger than just the physical land itself. So the promised land, this huge theme throughout all the Old Testament is pointing to something bigger than just the physical land. It's pointing to the inheritance God's people have. So that's why the promised land is described as an inheritance. And inheritance is also New Testament language used to describe the guarantee we have of our final reward, our final possession in the new heavens and new earth. So we, we are not specifically looking for a physical land as such. That's a promise given to God's people but we do have an inheritance. So in Ephesians 1, Paul says, we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So the Holy Spirit given to us, God dwelling among us, is the guarantee of our inheritance, the guarantee that there is a promise we have locked up for us in heaven. And the Holy Spirit is God saying, you have it. You are my son and my daughter. You are an heir. 
You are awaiting that inheritance. And so uh, if you remember the land, God gives to his people this physical land. Remember all the way back in Genesis, in the creation narrative, what does God do? He creates this land for his people to dwell in. He places Adam and Eve in this garden and God is actually dwelling among them, right? And then sin enters into the world. Adam and Eve um, become sinners by nature when they are then cast out of the land that God gave to them. And so then God appearing to Abraham and the people of Israel promising them this land is the beginning work of restoration of God saying, okay, what I did in creation, that's still my plan. It's not like, it's not like the devil threw me off. That's still my plan. My plan is always to dwell among my people. That's it. And so when God appears to the people of Israel, it's saying, this is still my plan. I'm going to give you a land where I will dwell among you by the tabernacle and by the temple, which is a sign of my presence. But it's, it's, a, it's a foreshadowing of what will come when I completely restore everything in the new heavens and the new earth. God is restoring what was lost in creation when sin cast humanity from God's presence. Now, I know that can be a bit abstract, but it's, it's important because this theme of the promised land that we're reading in Deuteronomy is pointing us to the new heavens and new earth. It's pointing us to this inheritance we have where God will dwell among his people in a completely restored land. That's, that's the point of the promised land. God will dwell among them, among us. And that's why the author of Hebrews in chapter 11 details all of these great people of the faith, particularly Abraham and Sarah, whom this promise was given. And he says in verse 16, these people desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. So they were given all these promises, but actually they desired a better country, a heavenly one, a city whose builder and architect is God, this heavenly Jerusalem. So that's how we understand this idea of the promised land. And so we see this story of Israel on their pilgrimage, faithfully crossing over into God's promised land. They're told not to stay on the fringes outside, but fully enter in because this is all part of God's restorative work. And we are called to fully enter into it. And we know that we are on a similar pilgrimage which is why we're called strangers and exiles. We have this, this um, pilgrim identity as God's people where we're not quite at home while we're at home. Like we're awaiting something more. We're, we're walking toward um, the promise of God's presence. And so what's the call for us today then? Since we have to wait for that inheritance. Like, of course, we know we wait. God is the one who's going to bring about the completion of the inheritance we have in heaven. So we, we wait for that. But there is something that we must fully jump into today while we await that inheritance. Something that we cannot stay on the fringes for. And so the warning that the tribes of Reuben, Gad and Manasseh had, these tribes that were on the fringes of the promised land, 
their warning was not to settle outside the promised land. So of course, eventually they could have that land, but the point was you must enter in with everyone else into the promised land when we take it as a symbol of us receiving our inheritance. You have to fully enter in. So God does not want his people to just stay on the fringe. He wants them to press on into the promise. And in our lives, this is so important for today, in our lives, we will have so many temptations, so many temptations to just stay on the fringe, to not enter into the fullness of discipleship because it scares us. Like freezing cold water and some annoying person about to splash you in the back. It's, it's terrifying. But this is, of course, something much bigger than that light-hearted example. It would have been costly to the Israelites. Like it would have been costly to the Israelites to enter into this promised land. Because remember, there were giants in there. They were giants, huge people, fortified cities, well-established, men of war. The people were risking their lives to head in, but they had to trust that God would deliver them and do the impossible. And there will be huge temptations in our lives that make us want to stay on the comfort zone, that kind of make us want to do what the first generation did wrong and say, no way. Is too big. I'm not doing that. Let's just like retreat a little bit. And what happened to them? Of course, they were sent out into the wilderness to perish, to die, to never receive the inheritance as a sign of God's judgment upon them. And so the call we have today is to cross over. As the Israelites are receiving the call to cross over the Jordan, our call is to cross over, to cross over comfort, cross over timidity, cross over that modern secular narrative of our society that says that the whole goal of your existence is to build this life of comfort and flourishing. That's the point. You do you. Build yours. Go get yours. Be about your comfort. Climb the corporate ladder. Take holidays. Take great photos. Have a good social media page. Be a moderately good person, but live for you. That's not the biblical narrative. That's not the call that we have. It's the total opposite. Our call is to deny ourselves. So we receive the same reminder that Moses gives to Joshua here in verses 21 and 22. This is where Moses is handing over the leadership, which we'll kind of um, cross in a few weeks' time. But the point of this here is Moses is saying to Joshua, hey, don't ever be scared. And, And it's funny because Joshua then gives this command to be strong and courageous in Um, his book as he's leading the people in and probably because he received that from Moses where Moses says your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings so will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing you shall not fear them for it is the Lord your God who fights for you we receive that same reminder look you've seen all God has done namely in giving up his own son and so that's why Romans 8 is so beautiful for us in verses 31 and 32. He who did not withhold his own son, but freely gave him up for us, how shall he not with him freely give us all 
things. So if God, that was the one moment where God could have reneged on his promise and said, that, that's way too much. I'm not giving up my precious son for you. But he didn't. He didn't. And so we know he will provide everything necessary to sustain us in this life of costly discipleship. So we cross over the barrier of comfort, trusting that our God will bring us in since he has complete supremacy over every hurdle and obstacle. And we may be brought in through much suffering and affliction like we went over last week, like we're not promised an easy life. In fact, the one thing we are promised is that those who desire to live a godly life will suffer persecution as a promise given to us receive it take it with joy realize that your faith if it is genuine faith will cost you something if it hasn't cost you anything you have to ask the question is it genuine faith and so those fears we have those fears we have on the fringe in this society those fears of seeming like a bigoted christian if we hold to certain Christian views, those fears of losing popularity, losing your job, maybe, being uncomfortable, these must be subjected and put under the reminder that it is the God of heaven and earth who fights for us. He will sustain us. See, I think a lot of the time, the reality is we stay on the fringe of discipleship. We stay on the fringes. We dip our toes in a little bit, but we really want to keep the majority of ourselves out. And I think we know it. I think it doesn't take a genius to look at the plain message of Scripture and realize that there is a great cost to this. And so don't, don't deceive yourselves into thinking that you can have one foot in costly discipleship and the other foot staying in this comfortable life that you are building. And Jesus makes this very clear in Luke 14. Um, I'm going to read from Luke 14. If you do have your Bibles, turn, turn with me there in Luke 14 from verse 26 on. Jesus here is talking about the cost of discipleship. And he says from verse 26, <clears throat> If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And people in that culture, I mean, the, the cross was... Uh, well-used form of punishment reserved for the worst of the worst, for non-Roman citizens. But the disciples and all those hearing would have known. I mean, there would have been thousands of crucifixions before Jesus. It was a normal punishment for rebellion, people who um, set themselves up against Rome. And it was reserved for the worst of the worst to, sh to basically show to people, don't you ever cross Rome or you will end up like this. And so Jesus is saying, you have to take up your cross. You have to take up your cross and follow me. It's not this kind of picture of meek and mild Jesus, you know, holding out his hand with sunflowers all around and this beautiful path 
toward him. It's actually him saying, you're going to suffer. You have to take up your cross, deny yourself completely to follow me. He, he goes on to say, make sure you, you understand this. And that's why he says, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all those who see it begin to mock him, saying this man began to build and was not able to finish. So he's saying, you must understand this. Count the cost. Don't be deceived. And he finishes with saying, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You must renounce everything. And the point of this, obviously we don't hate our mothers and fathers because we're told to honor them and love them. But the the point he's making is, if you want to follow me, your life is no longer your life, it's mine. Your job is no longer your job, it's mine. And you steward it for me. Every decision you make is based on me in your job. Your career, your family, it's mine. I own everything. And I've done that because I've given up myself for you. I've given you everything. We must renounce everything. We renounce ownership of everything. They are all, everything we have is for him and his glory. And so we cannot cling to our own comfort on the fringe of the promise like the Israelites were tempted to do. They receive the call to cross over. And in spite of giants and fortified cities, they were called to cross over into God's promise and trust that he will provide all things necessary for them to inherit this. And we read a few weeks ago that the account of the first generation and their attempt was largely just self-preservation. So, so when they were told to go into the land, they saw the people, they got freaked out and they wanted to protect themselves. So they said, no way, we're not doing it. And then God said, okay, well, now I'm going to place my judgment upon you and you're going to head back into the wilderness. So don't bother trying to go into the land. And they thought, well, I don't want to be under God's judgment. I'll go try and take the land. And so they were still trying to preserve themselves. Their whole life was based on a very self-centered self-preservation. And we will constantly, in a similar way, be confronted by these decisions to stay in our comfort zone, just on the fringe of discipleship. I feel it all the time, this pull to just don't jump in, just stay, stay on the fringe We have to reject that and we have to enter into the fullness of it and follow God's will into uncertainty. Remember Abraham's call when God appeared to him and God just said, hey, Abraham, leave everything and go to this city that I'll tell you about later. I'm paraphrasing a bit. But he basically says to Abraham, leave everything, go to this city. I'm going to show you it later. Don't worry about it. Just follow me we see an awfully similar call from Jesus coming to the disciples. These men who most of them, some of them were fishermen. That was their livelihood. Jesus tells them, follow me, live everything. You're no longer fishermen. I will make you fishers of men. Just follow me, live everything. And that's the call that we 
get when we initially follow Christ, but it's the call that we receive again and again, the call that is synonymous with us denying ourselves. And this is really what separates the the fake from the real. Those who want a fake version of Christianity where they can live a life of comfort that basically isn't any different to anyone else in this world and still call themselves a Christian, then this will make those people feel very uncomfortable and will inevitably react against it. There will be a pull to just not listen to it, just avoid it. But I want to be clear that there will still be a level of discomfort for genuine believers. I feel the discomfort. I don't know how you can't feel the discomfort reading Jesus' call to renounce everything. There is a level of discomfort, but what separates the genuine from the fake will be that that discomfort drives you deeper to God's throne of grace to ask for his mercy, to feel that gap where that discomfort comes because you realize, man, my life looks nothing like that. I want it to, but I feel powerless to. So God, strengthen me. I want that. The point of this, what separates the genuine from the fake is the trajectory that we're on. People will be at different levels, but the point is the trajectory. When you hear that, Jesus saying, renounce everything, is there something within you that wants that? I want to follow Christ. I want you. Or is there just an avoidance of it? It's good to feel the cost in this, but we remember what's undergirding that as we we don't ultimately fear this cost because we know it's the Lord God who fights for us. The same call that Moses gave Joshua. We don't fear jumping in to uncertainty. We don't fear it because when we're jumping into uncertainty, following in obedience to God, we are jumping into his grace. We're jumping into his complete ability to sustain us, to fight for us. Jumping in is losing every sense of self-sufficiency, jumping deeper in to God's will, trusting that his grace will sustain you. I'll finish by giving this quote from C.S. Lewis, who talks about the cost of discipleship. And Lewis says, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. Jesus calls us to give up everything. And like Lewis is saying, no half measures. Jesus doesn't come to just torment your natural self. He says, tear everything down. But the beautiful thing about this this idea of the cost of discipleship and what Lewis is saying here as he finishes, he says, Christ says, give up everything. Why? Because I'm going to give you myself. I'm going to give you myself. So it's like, it's like this life of comfort and self-preservation that we build, to us it seems like this luxurious garment, but really it's a filthy rag. It's a filthy, vomit-stained rag. And Jesus is saying, take it off. Take it off and have my robe of righteousness. 
have my complete righteousness, have the ability to stand before the creator of heaven and earth, your father, as a son or a daughter, someone who is wholly blameless and above reproach. Take my garment upon yourself. But you can't wear both. You cannot wear both. It's one or the other. Cross over into the depths of following Christ. And so you may have fears. You may have fears right now, things coming to your mind that you cling to. You may fear that it will be too much of a burden to give up another night of your week to either gather with God's people to pray or to spend time with someone from work who you are trying to share the gospel with. You might fear it's too burdensome to give up another night of your week to follow Christ in community. But maybe the Lord is calling you to cross over, cross over that. You may have fears of the repercussions or negative perceptions that will come your way if you are outspoken about Jesus. Man, I've felt that before many times in my life. You might fear that you'll be given a certain label if you are very clear about your faith in Jesus Christ. If you're actually calling people to receive the same call, this cost of discipleship, you may fear the perceptions that will come your way. But maybe the Lord is calling you to cross over that. You may feel the pull right now to just stay in that comfort zone. That voice saying, don't do it, man. It's too extreme, too zealous. Just stay in the comfort zone. Stay on the fringe. But the Lord is calling you to cross over that into the fullness of discipleship. And that's the call we have today, to cross over. And we have to realize, like, I, I am unashamed about calling people to this discipline, not because I'm some sadistic taskmaster that enjoys seeing people suffer and, um, or I'm so lonely that I need people to come and be part of my, my community or something like that. It's because I fundamentally believe that the cost of discipleship is not only essential to the life of Christians because we read it in the Word of God, but I believe that Christ is so worthy of everything. He is worthy of your life. And I actually believe that this is the best. This is the best possible place of joy and satisfaction is in this path of discipleship because it's what you were created for. You were made to cross over and spend eternity in the presence of God. So this in-between time now is just preparation. It's preparation for entering into the fullness of God's presence. So we cross over now, we cross over following this call. It may be one thing, it may be just one thing, because this is a journey, one thing in your life that you know is something that you cling to, or one thing that you know makes you a little bit nervous, but you see clearly, you see clearly a um, call in the Word of God, not from me, but in the Word of God, to gather with the community of God's people. You see very clearly a call in the word of God to be open about your faith, to share faithfully. And maybe one thing that you feel a great discomfort about, but cross over it, cross over it. Take this as a, a reminder to cross over that and to trust that God will sustain you. He will, 
He will sustain you. That's the beautiful thing. We have so many promises. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He will sustain us. And He will be faithful to bring us into His presence, into that final inheritance where all of these fears, all of these discomforts will be gone. We have an eternity to be comfortable. Spend this life following Jesus into the cost of discipleship.